Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest-running nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day because, hey, we have a wonderful show planned for you where, uh, you know, hopefully you haven't missed us too much. I know that uh, yesterday we played a best of on Computer America. Hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, very fun interview with Niceland Seafood. You know, again, you wouldn't think that a seafood company would have much to do with would have much to do with technology, but uh, highly recommend you go back and check that out if you didn't catch it the second time. But uh, in the meantime, welcome into the program, and yeah, great show for you today because all day today we have computer and technology news, which you know kind of works for us because we have days upon days worth of news to kind of catch up on and some big things and some big things have happened we don't just want to say hey you know that happened yesterday that's so yesterday and we're never going to mention it again instead we're going to try to catch up today and hey we're going to have a lot of fun doing it so for everyone out there everyone in the chat room hello welcome into the computer america chat room if you wish to join us there you can check us out at twitch.tv forward slash computer america and you can enter the chat room, talk with other chat participants, and, of course, get your questions directly to myself as we do the show. Try to uh, pay attention to that as much as we can. Also, be sure to check out the social media content that is brought to you by Logitech and available on our homepage. And also at ComputerAmerica.com, check out the show notes, which will have any and all videos, uh, any articles that we talk about, Anything and everything will be in one place at our website. So check that out if you want to follow up on anything. Okay. I think that is just about it before we get going here. And why don't we uh, get started with some computer and technology news. And as always, the live video portion of the show brought to you by OWC. And, of course, the uh, every segment of computer and technology news is brought to you by OWC as well. So if you want to check out their products, if you want to see what they're all about, check them out at owcdigital.com. And in the meantime, everyone, here we go. All right. Let's go ahead and uh, let's do it. So tons of stories here, and most of them are from today or yesterday, although I think the majority of them are from today. And let's go ahead and get talking about some of these. Let's start with, how about something a little bit on the hardware side? Uh, you know, I will say that for a while now, flash memory storage has been getting a lot better, uh, a lot more dense, a lot more compact, and a lot uh, you know more efficient. Essentially, it's a good time to be in the market for an SSD because some of the newer ones are just fantastic. They're really something else. I mean, there's this, uh, I don't want to call it a new technology, but you may know SSDs and they kind of look like miniature hard drives, except they don't spin. They're solid state. They're persistent. Um, yeah. Well, they have a new one out and it's called the NVMe. Uh, yeah. The NVMe uh, SSD. And these things, if you've never seen them before, 
kind of look like a stick of RAM. Obviously, they're going to be made differently. Uh, they're not going to be one-to-one stick of RAM, but they're, they're shaped like a stick of RAM, but they are a full-blown hard drive. I currently have one sitting in my computer, and my goodness, the speed that you get from an NVMe SSD as opposed to a solid-state drive is about the same uh, performance increase I saw going from a traditional hard drive to a solid-state drive. So all I'm saying is that the technology that goes into solid-state drives has really been kicking it up a notch you know, for a little while now. So again, it's a good time to start considering maybe even purchasing a new one. But why don't we go ahead and talk about this one from Toshiba? And yeah, they've uh, looks like they're really you know kind of hopping on board here because Toshiba, uh, they're a great brand. They have very quality products. Well, they've unveiled the XG6 series of SSDs, and this is the first SSD to be built using the cutting edge. 96-layer 3D flash tech. So what does that mean? Well, it says that, uh, and by the way, some specs here for anyone out there, uh, 3,180 megabytes per second. Sorry, there we go. Uh, 3,180 megabytes per second read speed and 3,000 megabytes per second write speed. Uh, for most people out there, especially if you're using, you know, kind of a mid-range SSD, um, you're looking at maybe 1,500, 2,000 isn't out of the question. But read-write speed are essentially the speed at which you can pull information from a hard drive and push information to a hard drive. And those speeds are all important because it kind of determines if you're sitting there, let's say you try to oh, I don't know, uh, save a large file. It's the difference between sitting there for, you know, 45 seconds or sitting there for 10 minutes. These read-write speeds really do matter, especially to professionals and gamers and things like that. And they said that with a stellar 365,000 random write IOPS, which is input-output operations per second, essentially, this thing is crazy fast. And at the same time, the device consumes a maximum of just 4.7 watts. And that probably has to do with the form factor and the fact that, you know, these things just don't take a lot of electricity. So the new SSDs arrived just a week after Toshiba unveiled the first samples of the next-gen 4 bits per cell 96-layer flash chip, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, that means they're going to be able to put even more density and make them even faster to read and write to and from. So they said that uh, the, the SSDs, with their complex controller designs, pose the most formidable flash design challenge. And Toshiba hasn't revealed the pricing for the drives yet, but says it's targeting client PC, high-performance mobile, embedded in gaming segments. So they said that the M.2, and by the way, that's what I kind of meant with the, the whole NVMe, the M.2 SSDs. Uh, they're available in 256, 512, and 1 terabytes. That's right. This little thing, and really, I mean, for anyone out there just you know, listening to the radio portion of today's show, uh, by the way, thank you for tuning into IRN, but um, for anyone out there who's just listening, uh, essentially take two fingers, and of course I know everyone's fingers are different, take two fingers and extend them, push them together, you know, your index and your middle finger, and that's about the size of a 1 terabyte hard drive. And really, you know, about a third of the thickness. It is 
just insane how compact these things are. So you can see where they would really shine in places where they don't have a lot of room. Uh, you know, the fact that they can shave off uh, inches from a traditional SSD, these things are going to be in high demand. So there's no word yet when you'll be able to find one on Amazon. Uh, there are others that you can find, but it seems like the technology that goes into uh, controlling SSDs, especially these M.2s, they are getting better and better as time goes on. So, I, I mean, but hey, that's uh, that's all technology, isn't it? That's, uh, but it's definitely cool to see, and it's great to see how quickly they're doing it, especially from Toshiba, who's, you know, maybe not up there with the top one, two, three, you think, when it comes to hard drives. So, let's go ahead and talk about some of these other ones. Uh, just wanted to get that one out of there, just to prove that we are Computer America, and we do like to talk about hard drives. But let's talk about some of these other ones, including, all right, so this is a follow-up to a story we did, I think, on Friday when we touched on this. And, yeah, it has to do with the fact that, well, Apple had a thermal cooling problem with, or a thermal throttling problem with their new MacBook Pro. MacBook Pro is a line of MacBooks that are designed for professionals, uh, you know, maybe gamers, but not even gamers. I don't think uh, gamers are looking for a $7,000 laptop with, uh, you know, with okay specs. It's more for working professionals who want a very compact and slim and just, you know, very polished experience. Well, that's where you wind up with what happened with Apple and their MacBook Pro, when, when decked out to the gills, came with an i9 processor, which was a first for the line. And something totally expected, as we kind of covered on Friday, happened, but also seemingly unexpected that Apple would, you know, kind of be caught. And actually, now that I think about it, that seems to be Apple's, you know, kind of how they operate. But we'll talk about that in a second. But at any rate, this coming from Six Colors, and there's a couple other... Uh, you know, there's a couple of other publications who have picked up on this as well. But after a week of, of controversy following a video that claimed that the new 15-inch MacBook Pro could experience massive slowdowns, Apple on Tuesday, being today, acknowledged that the slowdowns exist and that they're caused by a bug in the thermal management software of all 2018 MacBook Pro models. And that bug has been fixed in a software update that Apple is pushing out to everyone as of Tuesday morning. So they claim it's a it's a bug. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, it doesn't. Given Apple's track record, it's going to be hard for the community at large to really accept the fact that this is going to be. Oh, how do you say it? That this is a bug and not a feature. So. One of the big, one of the biggest, you know, kind of problems here is the fact that, well, of course, Apple throttled a lot of phones. They were diminishing the speeds of a lot of phones out there simply because they wanted they wanted them to last longer, and they were pushing out these iOS updates that were not optimized for their own hardware. So instead of, you know, taxing older, let's say, smartphones. Uh, to the point where they would randomly shut off, they were throttling them. 
to the point where they were slower. Yes, people, you were not making it or you were not, uh, you know, imagining it. Whenever a new iOS, a big iOS update came out, yes, your iPhone 5S suddenly got slower. That's something that Apple has definitely done in the past. Um, so, you know, they've, they've admitted to doing this, and I guess that's why kind of going forward, <clears throat> excuse me, that's why I think going forward, when you see Apple throttling things for the sake of stability, that seems right up their alley. That seems like something that they would totally do and they have done before. So the official Apple statement, uh, let's see if we should even bother reading this. Uh, following extensive performance testing under numerous workloads, we've identified that there is missing that there is a missing digital key in the firmware that impacts the thermal management system and could drive clock speeds down under heavy thermal loads on the new MacBook Pro. A bug fix is included in today's macOS High Sierra uh, update and, of course, is recommended. We apologize to any customers who have experienced less than optimal performance. Customers can expect the new 15-inch MacBook Pro to be up to 70% faster and the new MacBook Pro with Touch Bar to be up to two times as fast and as shown by performance tests on our website. So... I mean, the software—if it really is a bug, then you know that's great. Glad that they fixed it, and I'm eager, and I am eagerly awaiting the new testing that third parties are going to verify. Something that we touched on yesterday, or I'm sorry, Friday as well. The fact that you know Apple can put up all of these results, all of these benchmarking tests, all of this data for you know, kind of what they expect their computers to do, but real-world, third-party, independent benchmarking is king when it comes to telling you how a computer is really going to operate. So I'm looking forward to that, seeing if it really was a bug, and at the same time, if they simply just turned off the thermal throttling, which is a key part in a lot of computers, I'm wondering if under heavy workloads, the Mac 15 inch now or at least the macbook pro now has the possibility of actually damaging itself or if the thermal throttling is still you know kind of in place to the point where computers will protect themselves from any kind of damage so they said that um yeah, so today's supplemental, uh, Tuesday's supplemental update doesn't seem to have any impact on performance and all of Apple's previous claims, uh, and all of Apple's previous claims uh, are still accurate. When given an opportunity to rerun his test after applying the fix, Lee should find that his MacBook Pro is now clearly faster than last year's model. So there you go. If you have a MacBook Pro and you spent thousands of dollars on it, Hey, it just got a bit of a performance boost, so definitely check that out. All right, now let's move on to probably one of the biggest stories today. And as much fun as it is to pick on Apple, let's talk about the European Union. They are on a tear, and I'm not sure if I'm just coming at it from like an American North, you know, North America-centric kind of view, but EU is kicking butt and taking names when it comes to anti-consumer, anti-competitive behavior. 
uh, I think it was just a couple weeks ago, like literally two weeks ago, that the European Union actually fined Google over Android about $5 billion, 4.3 or 4.1 billion euros for anti-competitive behavior and essentially locking other search companies out of the market because they controlled Android and because it was the default and because they didn't really give anyone any options, they were cornering the market. And, you know, kind of in America, we would look at that and go, well, you know, hey, they're, uh, they're, they're, the, they're the leaders. That's their prerogative. The consumers have spoken, and that's what it is. Well, I guess to the EU and I guess a lot of other organizations, that's anti-competitive to the point where they must be rebuked. Now enter a new one where the European Union finds Asus, Denon, and Marantz, uh, I'm sure I've heard of them at some point, Philips, and Pioneer for $130 million for online price fixing. There you have it. That is a lot of money. Of course, it's not $5 billion for Google, but between all these companies, $130 million again, for price fixing. They said that uh, it's four separate decisions for imposing fixed or minimum resale prices on their online retailers in breach of EU competition rules. So it says that the four companies engaged in so-called, quote, fixed or minimum resale price uh, maintenance by restricting the ability of their online of their online retailers to set their own retail price for as for widely used consumer electronics products such as kitchen appliances, notebooks, and hi-fi products. So, Asus has been hit with the largest fine, that being about 63 million euro. And let's see, 63 million euro. I am horrible with conversions like this, but let's just say that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 70 million dollars. Uh, Philips has been hit with about a $35 million uh, fine. And the other two fines were about 10 million euro for Pioneer. So I don't know, what is that? 13 million US and 7.7 for Denon and Marantz, which works out to be just under 10, if I'm not mistaken, $10 million. So the commission found that the manufacturer put pressure on e-commerce outlets who offered their products at low prices writing, if those retailers did not follow the prices requested by manufacturers, they faced threats or sanctions such as blocking of supplies. Many, including the biggest online, online retailers, use price, pricing algorithms, which automatically adapt retail prices to those of competitors. In this way, the pricing restriction imposed, a new, uh, I'm sorry, imposed on low-pricing retailers typically had a broader impact on overall online pricing for the respective consumer electronics product. So I guess what they're saying there is that let's say Walmart, Amazon, and again, kind of using uh, American-centric companies here, but let's say these other large online e-retailers, they will go out, they have algorithms that 
find the exact same product because all these products, regardless of where they come from or who they're sold by, all have the same product number, all have the same identifying information. They'll go out to their competitor sites, scrounge up how much their competitors are selling them for, and then they will either reduce it by, by a bit or they will undercut or they will match or they will do something to the nature automatically. Because you you can't imagine the amount of uh, you can't imagine the amount of products out there and the amount of time it would take someone to actually go out and change these by hand. So because it's automatic and because all these manufacturers were again telling certain retailers how much they could how much they were allowed to price these things for. At a minimum, if they wanted to sell them for even less, then that wasn't allowed. They said that if you do that, we will not sell you any more of our computer, yeah, not sell you any more of our computers, any more of our speakers, any more of our kitchen appliances. We will not sell you anything else if you don't raise your prices. And the fact that they were raised, it raised prices across the entire spectrum of competitors. So even if they target just one, uh, you know, even if ASUS just targets one outlet, that has repercussions across the spectrum. So, again, to be clear, that's why, uh, you know, that's why raising the minimum matters. So, as so as um, sorry, it also notes that use of sophisticated monitoring tools by the manufacturers allow them to effectively track resale price. Setting in, the uh, setting in the distribution network and to intervene swiftly in case of price decreases. So then they use the same algorithms themselves to alert them whenever something was effectively uh, you know, suddenly too low. I would guess within a short amount of time, they would be very proactive and try to reach out to these people and say, hey, you have to raise your price. So. Uh, the price intervention lim uh, limited effective price competition between retailers and led to higher prices with an immediate effect on consumers. So, in particular, ASUS, who again received the bulk of the fine, ASUS was found to have monitored the resale price of retailers for certain computer hardware and electronics products such as notebooks and displays and have done so in two EU member states. Germany and France between 2011 and 2014. So, you know, 130 million dollars. That's ser that's a serious fine. But you also have to remember that this happened years ago, and this happened over the course of a number of years. So for ASUS, it was things such as computers and monitors, obviously the things that ASUS are known for. Uh, Denon and Marns was found to have engaged in resale price maintenance with respect to audio equipment and video consumer products such as headphones and speakers. And uh, yeah, and that happened in Germany and the Netherlands between 2011 and 2015. Uh, Philips was found to have done the same in France between the end of 2011-2013, and uh, but for a range of consumer electronics products, the, and those include, and again, Philips received, I think, uh, the second lowest fine, only about $13 million. Uh, I, I say only $13 million. But yeah, $13 million on everything from kitchen appliances, coffee machines, vacuum cleaners, home cinema, and home video systems, electric toothbrushes, 
Ew, 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 ew. If you didn't catch that, we're talking about the resale value of used products, essentially secondhand products that go from company to company. They're listed online, and you can buy them. Uh, refurbished, resale, price, maintenance. Uh, actually, I take that back. Maybe people aren't reselling their electric toothbrushes. I sure hope not. But at any rate, I guess resellers also include anyone who, let's say, buys from ASUS and resells in their own store. So at any rate, uh, yeah, Phillips charge for a lot more. So the article goes on for a bit. We're going to kind of wrap it up there. But they're saying, let's see, let's end with this quote here, saying, quote, it is good that we can now leave this case behind us and focus on the positive impacts that our products and solutions can provide people. And this was a spokesperson for Philips saying, let me please stress that Philips attaches prime importance to full compliance with applicable laws, rules, and regulations. Being a responsible company, everyone in Philips is expected to always act with integrity. Philips rigorously enforces compliance with general business principles through the company. Philips has a zero tolerance policy towards noncompliance in relation to, to breaches of its general business principles. So, you know, and at the same time, I can feel like they kind of say that. I don't know how many, uh, quote unquote, how many heads rolled over the course of the, uh, you know, over the course of the past few years. Again, most of these allegations that uh, they're being fined for happened between 2011 and 20, uh, let's see, 2011 and 2014 for many of these companies. So you can check them out there and... Yeah, again, if nothing else, good job for the European Union for looking out for consumers because I'm kind of shocked that it's happening, but I'm coming from a place where the U.S. just doesn't punish companies for anti-competitive behavior and practices. So good job, EU, and yeah, that article linked to it in the show notes. All right. We have time to just get started on one more story, and then we're going to head off into break and come right back, of course. But let's talk about <laughs> looking through all these different stories here. I got one. So this has to do with Amazon and with Walmart. Two of the biggest, well, ever since Amazon acquired Whole Foods, two of the biggest grocery providers in the country. And this is an exciting time because if you are I – don't, I don't even want to say if you are lazy because I think grocery home delivery services are not about lazy. They're a matter of convenience. So let's say both Amazon and Walmart announced expanded grocery delivery operations. It's a good time for competition such as this. So here we have it saying that Amazon and Walmart's rivalry continues today with two dueling announcements related to the respective grocery delivery expansions, which is great. Hey, I love grocery delivery. And this morning, Amazon said it's bringing grocery delivery via Whole Foods to several new markets, including New York and Florida. And uh, let's see, New York and Florida, including New York City, and Miami, among others. So obviously, if you live in a large city, you're in luck because that is where a lot of these grocery delivery services 
are going to be. Obviously, they're going to start out in California, in San Francisco. Uh, they're going to start out in Austin, Texas, or in Houston, or in Dallas, or New York City, or Chicago. Uh, they're going to start in these much, much, much larger cities and then work their way out from there. If you live in a particularly rural uh, community, uh, yeah, you're still probably a couple years off from these large chains paying attention. But hey, large cities first, that's, that, that's a start. And meanwhile, Walmart today is expanding grocery delivery in partnership with Postmates with a launch in the L.A. region. That's right. So Walmart coming to L.A. and uh, Amazon Whole Foods coming to New York City and Miami. So this rollout with Postmates follows news from May of Walmart ending its relationship with prior grocery delivery partners, Uber and Lyft. And at the time, Walmart said uh, customers in four markets Uber served and one that Lyft served wouldn't notice any changes as it was switching over to a new delivery provider. And let's see. So let's go ahead and skim this real quick before we go to break. Uh, Today, Amazon says it's bringing Whole Foods deliveries to select areas of New York City, starting with lower Manhattan and Brooklyn. And it's also offering the service in Fort Lauderdale, Miami, Palm Beach, and parts of Long Island. So pretty darn cool. As you can see, there's some overlap, but as a majority, it seems like they're trying to avoid each other as they start to offer these services more and more. Folks, music means we're going to take a break. We are back. More Computer America right after this. Everyone, stay tuned. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour as we continue on here. And, uh, and yeah, let's go ahead and continue on with computer and technology news. Uh, hey, we are, of course, just finishing up the story about the fact that Amazon, Walmart, they are not, well, of course, they're traditionally rivals. They, op- they operate in a lot of the same spaces. But when it comes to groceries and grocery delivery, well, it seems like their competition is fueling some sort of renewed interest in having the ability to just order online and have fresh groceries shipped to your doorstep and, hey, will actually deliver it to your doorstep very, very quickly. That's something we like to see, and, hey, that's something. All right, let's get tacky again. Uh, so a large number of our audience, or actually, I don't even want to say a large number, um, a good segment of our audience cares very deeply about certain kinds of technology that make technology usable by those with either vision, hearing impaired, what have you. Uh, you know, for the longest time, we had uh, we had long talks with uh, you know the creator of a program called Jaws. It was uh, it was a software used for I believe it was vision impaired. It was uh, you know it was kind of talk. Uh, it, it would kind of tell people who couldn't see how they were or what a website looked like so that they could navigate the internet. Because if you think about it, the internet is very, very visual. Um, it's something that, you know, if you cannot see at all, it would be almost impossible to browse. But at the same time, there's a lot of content that someone without vision could still enjoy, you know, be that listening to music or uh, listening to audiobooks or the like. I mean, the internet has a lot to offer. It's just, it's not very well optimized. So we always like to take, 
you know, whenever we see stories such as this, we always like to take a moment and check out uh, products that make life easier for those with certain disabilities. And this is a cool one because I think it's kind of a mix between science fiction and the fact that it's actually here. But this one coming to us from Engadget, Mr. John Fingus, and talking about reprogrammable Braille could shrink books to just a few pages. And elastic bits with memory could eliminate the need for gigantic volumes. So Braille displays have made the digital world more accessible to those with vision issues. But readers who prefer the portability of a book haven't had that upgrade. Even a typical book might require over a dozen volumes of Braille paper, which rules out reading during a summer vacation. So Harvard researchers could soon whittle that down to a far more convenient size as they've crafted reprogrammable I'm sorry, uh, reprogrammable Braille that could eliminate the need for unique pages without the bulk of a display. So, yeah, obviously, I think I don't need to describe Braille to a lot of people, but according to the product images here, it looks like they're able to um, they're able to flex uh, either you know stretch it using. Uh, actually, let's just read the article here, but they're able to essentially stretch the elastic material so that they can make Braille appear uh, as they've coded it before. So the concept is straightforward. The team compressed a thin curved elastic shell using forces on each end and then made indents with a basic stylus. And once you remove the compression, the shell remembers the indents. And you can erase them just by stretching the shell. It sounds simple, but it's incredibly flexible. In test, Harvard could control the number, position, and chronological order of the indents. And there's no lattice holding it up. And it works with everything from conventional paper to super thin graphene. Although working with graphene, I think everything works with graphene, um, except graphene. Graphene doesn't work outside of a laboratory. So, I mean cool that they tested it, but um, yeah. So anyways, this is still rudimentary, and while you can store memories in the shells, you can't perform computing tasks with them. You'll need a more sophisticated platform to control the page changes, and if that happens, though, Braille books could be considerably more accessible. So that could be helpful for long trips where you're searching for something to read, but it might also be incredibly valuable for schools that could easily send Braille literature home with students. And they even have a picture here of what the indents look like, and you, you can kind of see them there. Um, you know, uh, again, uh, the principle is very simple, but at the same time, it's, uh, if they can get it to work, and they said they got it to work with real-world uh, materials, again, such as paper, then that's exciting all by itself. So check that out. All right. There's that one. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Let's talk about. So here's some news. I really have to triple check this because, man, I've, I've been waiting for this news for a while now, and I really want it to be true. So for anyone out there who's built a computer recently and you wanted to check out their graphics card and, Maybe it's been like two years, you want to build a new one, and you're like, 
wow, uh, let's say an RX 580 from, uh, uh, let's say an RX 580 from uh, AMD, a graphics card. Well, that thing was only about, oh, I don't know, um, 300 bucks. And then you come back two years later and you go, all right, well, that's still a good card. It's a, you know, still decent. Let's check how much that's worth. And turns out that thing is now worth about $500. The price of it actually went up. That was the situation with a lot of graphics cards where over the years, older graphics cards that should be reaching the end of their own life cycle or, you know, at least being the newest card on the block, they were increasing in price, which is something technology rarely does. As time goes on, technology gets better, faster, more efficient. It becomes older, what have you. Uh, Prices are supposed to go down. Well, thanks to cryptocurrency and crypto mining, that's not what we saw. And that's where we are now. Saying that graphics cards prices started going crazy about a year ago when cryptocurrency skyrocketed. You remember the time? Bitcoin almost touched $20,000 per coin. And everyone decided that, you know, turning electricity into nonsensical calculations was more, uh, was more feasible than uh, not. So here we are. Saying that the price of an RX 570, a mid-range graphics card popular for cryptocurrency mining, soared from under $200 in April to about $450 in February. That's right, about doubled, and the same goes for the RX 580, both from, of course, AMD. But since then, graphics cards prices have been falling steadily, and that is according to data collected by PC Part Picker. An RX 570 fell to around 350 bucks by the end of April, and you can now get one for a bit more than 300 And an RX 580, that goes for around 330 To be clear, they started at $200, and they started at $230, so $200, $230, uh, respectively, and now they're worth about 300 330 Still 100 bucks over the suggested MSRP. So when, uh, you know, when the author visited the local Best Buy store back in January, the store was asking about $530 for a Radeon 580, and the store didn't even have them in stock at that price. So even if that sounds ridiculous, like who the heck is going to pay for that? Yeah, you still couldn't find a graphics card, even when you were paying that much money. And by late April, the same card was available through the website for about 340 bucks. So it's dropped almost, 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 almost $200 over the course of a couple months. Uh, these cards still have room to fall. They're still well above the prices of the early 2017s. And hopefully these prices continue to drop. A similar pattern can be seen from NVIDIA GeForce where a GTX 1080, which is one of the higher cards, uh, peaked at about 800 bucks, and it has since fallen to about 600. I think the 1080, though, is supposed to be about 500 bucks, if I'm not mistaken. Anywho, uh, the, G- the GeForce GTX 1070 has fallen from around 700 to 500 over the past several months. And 
So that's just above the 450 or so they fetched in the mid 2017. So mid so mid to early 2017. Yes, crypto miners were still buying them. Yes, it was still a thing, but it didn't really become like we have an industry-wide shortage of graphics cards until about late 2017. That's when not just crypto miners, but everyone got into the idea that, hey, I want to mine Bitcoin. So unsurprisingly, this is this has come at the same time that that Ether, the currency for the Ethereum network, has been on a steady downward trajectory. Ether is only the second most valuable cryptocurrency worth far less than Bitcoin, but Bitcoin mining isn't economical and graphics cards uh, and, and uh, I'm sorry, isn't economical with graphics cards because the Bitcoin mining market has long been taken over by energy efficiency ASICs. So for the last year, the value of graphics cards has been largely driven by the value of Ether. Interesting to note. So, yep, essentially what the author is getting at here is that the price of uh, was the price of graphics cards continues to be driven down because of lower demand for cryptocurrency mining, and as he points out, by Ether. So. Let's hope that's the case because as someone who is trying to help people build computers, when they have maybe tight budgets or they're expecting one thing and you go out and you say, you, you can get a decent sized graphics card or a decent uh, high-end graphics card with that. And then you look and you go, eh, never mind. You're going to have to get a mid-range graphics card because of these prices. As someone who helps people build computers, it's a great thing to see these prices go down. So there you have it. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Let's talk about, all right, let's talk about this one. So 24 people, what do they have in common? Well, they're now all, they're not all sentenced in an Indian-based phone scam. So, you know, the ones, they call you up, they say, hey, uh, this is the IRS. You didn't pay your IRS bill. You should definitely pay us back. Blah blah blah. Um, yeah, you know it. It happens. Well, well, it happens, and you know you see these people on you know on television. They have their bank accounts wiped out. It's a whole mess that they have to live without money for a little while until the bank gets it all reversed, and essentially the criminals get away with it. Well. Looks like one of the biggest scam rings has been broken up, and after pleading guilty, a new group of 21 defendants has recently been sentenced. So this is going to Ars Technica, and yeah, you know, you, you can't hate it. This is a good. This is definitely a good thing for the average consumer, where a total of 24 people who pleaded guilty to their involvement in a massive years-long phone scam often involving fake internal revenue service and United States citizenship and immigration services officials have has now been I'm sorry have now been given prison sentences from 4 to 20 years. Oof. That's a lot. But at the same time, you got to remember these are people who were scamming those most vulnerable out of their life savings. So the indictment was originally filed in October 2016 against 61 people 
and includes charges of conspiracy to commit identity theft, impersonation of an officer in the United States, wire fraud, and money laundering. And if the victims didn't pay up, callers threatened to arrest, deport, or impose heavy fines on those that were calling. There were also related scams involving fake payday loans uh, and bogus U.S. government grants, according to criminal complaint. Essentially, just any way that they could figure out how to get money out of these people, they tried it six ways to Sunday. It was ev- – it, it, nothing was too low for these guys to, uh, to try. So they said that uh, according to the Department of Justice, Patel was the manager of a Chicago team of runners that helped receive and launder the proceeds of their fraud scheme. And Patel was part of a new group of 21 defendants that were sentenced last week in federal court in Houston. So this wasn't even in India. Well, I mean, some of them were uh, indicted in India, but there are a number of individuals in the U.S. that were also sentenced in federal court in America in Houston. And they said that the stiff sentences imposed this week represent the culmination of the first ever large-scale multi-jurisdiction prosecution targeting the India call center scam industry. And that was by Jeff Sessions. Talk, and uh, they said that the case represents one of the most significant victories to date in our continuing efforts to combat elder fraud in the victimization of the most vulnerable members of the U.S. public. And of course, anyone who believes that they are a victim of fraud or identity theft, you may contact the Federal Trade Commission and you can report it. But um, yeah, I, don't get me wrong, 21 people here in the United States, 61 people overseas, I mean, they're okay numbers, especially if they are, you know, the first time we're ever doing them. But they don't even begin to scratch the surface. And another problem is the fact that this just doesn't happen in India. I mean, India, they are even transitioning themselves away from doing this, and many of these call centers are actually taking up residence in in Pakistan, actually, is one of the newest hotbeds. So obviously, you you know, we can beat the drum all day long here on Computer America and say, the IRS will never call you. Your bank will never demand your payment information over the phone. No financial institution will ever, 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 ever ask for wiring of funds or transactions over the phone. That will never happen. They will contact you by mail. They love things in paper. And if you are ever concerned that you're receiving these phone calls, be curious, be uh, oh, what's the phrase? Uh, be disbelieving. You know, don't believe what they say, and don't take it for granted that they are who they say they are. So always ask for them to send you something in writing. Always ask for them to prove their identity over yours. And you know, you can say that all day long, but the reason that they do these is that even if a thousand people. 999 people out of 1,000 um, walk away from either our radio show or, uh, you know, I've seen these warnings on television or other places. Even if none of them fall for it, if one person does it, that justifies and pays for 
everyone else and for these things to continue to happen. It's a low effort, it's a wide net, and people will fall for it. I've seen it before. I've actually fallen victim to it before, and it's not pleasant. So the fact that they're cracking down on it and they you know, have at least something to show for it, that is something definitely good. Hey, it, one thing I'm noticing from all these stories Consumers, they're getting better between the EU, between uh, a number of other third-party organizations, between the Justice Department. The consumer is getting safer all the time. That's something. So let's see. Let's see. Let's see. So there's that one. All right. So maybe we can wrap up with these two. These are these next two are tied, and I'm wondering how long until the shift actually you know, is going to start popping up. So this has to do with, uh, let's see, Engadget, Swampnut Krishna, talking about Verizon and how they're bringing residential 5G, well, bringing residential 5G service to Houston. So it's the third, uh, it's the third city after Sacramento and Los Angeles. So, hey, first city outside of California, officially getting 5G service. You're going to hear more and more about this because, hey, we've ratified it. We know what the 5G service consists of. Do not be fooled by AT&T. AT&T is rolling out what they call kind of quote-unquote 5G service. It's not strictly 5G uh, according to the specifications put forth by, you know, whoever makes the standards. But it's kind of AT&T's attempts at 5G. It's definitely faster than 4G LTE but it's kind of like 4G LTE plus plus. It's not, you know, strictly 5G. What Verizon is doing, now that's 5G, and this is going to take a number of years to fully implement. I think they're saying that maybe by the end of uh, 2019, they're going to have it rolled out in a lot of major markets. But, anywho, 5G is important. It's a, it's a real turning point for wireless technology. And they said that the focus here is on residential home service rather than mobile broadband. Uh, yeah, Verizon is stepping in to provide high-speed internet service for underserved communities, saying that we will be the first to offer commercial 5G service, and our work with Houston put us one step closer to delivering that promise. So with 5G, we are ushering in a fourth industrial revolution that will help reshape cities and lead to unprecedented innovation, and Houston will be the forefront of that innovation. Now, that kind of sounds like hyperbole. I don't think 5G will strictly be a new age of, uh, you know, a fourth age of industrial revolution. Uh, it's certainly powerful technology, but wireless technology is kind of incremental and will get better and better over time. You can't call every new iteration of 4G, 5G, 6G, uh, you know, a new industrial re revolution, but it is going to make a difference. So the article wraps up by saying it's not clear how well the service will work in the real world. And although the low latency and high speeds show real promise, that's likely why Verizon is rolling out slowly. If 5G mobile service, uh, if it's 5G mobile service you're after, then you'll have to wait until next year when you have 5G-compatible handsets, i.e. phones. But to lean more heavily on that whole thing about, you know, 
innovation, everything Verizon was talking about, that rolls in with this story. And I think we can squeeze this one in before the end of the show. But Verizon, they're in talks with Apple and Google. You've heard of them. They own the world. Uh, to stream live TV over its 5G network. And this is the important part. We've talked about cord cutting, and that's all well and fine. But what happens when you're able to cut even your internet cable so that you can just have a wireless 5G network running throughout your home? And that seems to be a future that Verizon is trying to work towards. So this is from The Verge, and let's see, Shannon uh, Lau talking about Verizon wants to partner with Google, or, with Google or Apple to stream live television to homes over its upcoming 5G network, and that's according to a report from Bloomberg, where the company is reportedly in talks with both companies, but a partnership isn't guaranteed to come out of those negotiations. So essentially they're saying, hey, we'd like to work with one of you two, who's it going to be? And by enlisting the help of a service like Apple TV or YouTube TV, Verizon could potentially deliver those services at 5G speeds to offer customers more tempting content packages than those presented by traditional cable companies like Comcast and AT&T. Otherwise, Comcast and and AT&T, which are also either investing in 5G infrastructure or testing out the technology, could threaten Verizon with their superior television shows and eventual 5G speeds. So I guess what they're saying there is that Verizon, they don't strictly uh, peddle in content delivery, just like um, uh, Comcast and AT&T. Of course, Comcast and AT&T through DirecTV, they have a lot of vested interest in cable television. Verizon really doesn't. And I guess that they're hoping that by doing this sort of thing with Apple or YouTube, they get some kind of foot in the door when it comes to, hey, we want to provide your content. We want you to have Apple TV brought to you by Verizon. So while none of the companies openly commented on the reported talks, Verizon did announce plans to launch a 5G uh, network in Houston. And... Verizon already already announced plans to bring 5G technology to Sacramento and Los Angeles earlier. And so I think if this goes as Verizon is hoping it does, they would be able to blanket entire neighborhoods with fast, consistent 5G network speeds, and that would bring people to the eventual thought that, hey, if we pay Verizon and we streamed Netflix, Hulu, uh, you know, all of our content that we would court cut from, and we streamed it strictly over a 5G network brought to you by Verizon, then Verizon would be able to charge all of the data fees, all of the network fees, and be able to cut everyone else out of the loop. It's just people have to have something to watch or to uh, do with all the data that Verizon is providing them. Will it work? I mean, that's kind of where Verizon is angling towards when it comes to you know the next uh, technological revolution. What happens when you don't have to run a cable into your home anymore? What happens when you don't have to plug anything into anything 
to be able to receive internet connection. What happens when you receive the same internet speeds uh, that you would at home and you receive them on a bus or on the train or in your office building? And essentially, no more network cords anywhere. If 5G is as steady and as fast as they're claiming, which in some reports goes up to 10 gigabits per second, which is super fast for wireless, super fast for anything, but super fast for wireless, if it's able to do that, what is the future of technology going to look like when everything internet-wise is a wireless technology? So that's what Verizon is hoping for. Will they be able to do it? It's going to be more about, I don't know, are they going to be able to provide the service at a cheap, effective rate? And that's something Verizon currently struggles with, with their current service. So, hey, you know, we'll see. But 5G, certainly something to keep an eye out for, as is Computer America. Thank you for tuning into the show. Music means that we're about done here. And if you enjoyed today's program, be sure to uh, check us out on social media. Give us a like. Give us a follow. And in the meantime, tune in tomorrow, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, as we are, let's see, let me go to the calendar I got this. Scott Schober. There we go. He's our security expert, and it's going to be all about cybersecurity, and it's going to be a lot of fun. He's a great guest and very, very knowledgeable. Until next time, everyone, have a great day. Thank you for tuning in. And if you checked out the podcast version of the show, thank you for checking out Computer America. Everyone, have a good one, especially, hey, catch you here tomorrow. Bye, everyone.